I'm looking for my wife. Wait. This is where it has to happen, and this is where it has to happen. I'm not letting you get rid of me. How about that? This used to be my specialty. You know, I was good in the living room. They send me in there, and I do it alone. And now I just... Tonight, our little project, our company, had a very big night. A very, very big night. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete. Because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I miss my, I miss my wife. We live in a cynical world, a cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. I love you. You complete me. And I just Hey. Shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. Maybe I should give you a minute to go get your Kleenex. <clears throat> can, I, can I put that moment in context for everybody? Good morning, by the way, beloved. I, the days are cold and dank, but the sun will come and the days will lengthen and, and soon things will be budding, so um, take heart. But again, let me, let me put that clip in context. Uh, Valentinus was a third century priest, might have been a bishop, we're not sure, he was persecuted for his faith until he was martyred for that faith. And, and as it has come to be a thing within the Roman Catholic tradition, a day was set aside to celebrate his martyrdom, his, his, his faith. And so that's, that day, according to that tradition, is February 14th. So today's St. Valentine's Day, according to that tradition. But um, as traditions go, some traditions uh, get overtaken by other ideas. I don't know, for example, Christmas heard of it? 
certain traditions begin in a certain way, certain ideas are valued in that moment, and then something else comes along and, and it begins to overshadow what was the original intention of that day. And so by the 14th or 15th century, the whole idea of the romantic period and courtly love and romantic love begins to overtake anything that St. Valentine was originally about. And so what you have there now on St. Valentine's Day today is that it's more than just a day about St. Valentine. It's more than about a focus. It's, it's actually a whole new storyline that we've embraced as a culture in a widespread way. That Valentine's heart for the Lord as his greatest glory has now been eclipsed. It's been eclipsed by two people's love for each other. And now that is the greatest glory that you might ever know, or so the present storyline goes. And that's what Jerry Maguire is a display of. That now everything is about how another might complete me. And as wondrous and as, as uh, sentimental as that is, that, that is the perfect evidence of how the storyline has changed. Where the love for the Lord has been replaced by a love for another exclusively. And that, that is the end of that story in Jerry Maguire, but in another sense, it's the end, it's the end we all want. Ernest Becker wrote a book in the 1970s entitled The Denial of Death. And what Ernest Becker wrote in the 1970s is on display here, there in the 1990s and will be on display until something else replaces it. And so he says in that book, modern man fulfills his urge to self-expansion in the love object just as it was once fulfilled in God. One's heart, one's affection for the Lord has now been replaced for one's affection for another, and that's the end we're all seeking. That's the end that everybody's spending a lot of money on this day and perhaps every other day. This morning, we're going to try to tie together a bunch of loose threads from where we've been in the last seven weeks, where we've been out to answer this question, what does Jesus mean when he says, I've come to make all things new? We're going to look at that passage this morning that inspired the entire series, and we're going to learn that what he's making new is an entirely different world, a new heavens and a new earth, but with it, therefore, a new ending, a new storyline with a different end, both in terms of its conclusion and also in terms of its point. And what I think this text is asking us all to do is, is to start with that ending. Not the ending you find in Jerry Maguire, but the ending that you find here, because how you understand that ending, how you believe in that ending, is going to have an effect on how you live in the middle. And so we're going to listen to this apocalyptic text that is full of vivid imagery and of things that you've heard maybe so often and maybe have a hard time biting down on and really chewing on it. We're going to listen to that and we're going to learn three things why it's important to start with this ending. Because it's one, going to clarify what your greatest good is. Two, it's going to answer in a profound way what your deepest fear is. And three, it is going to purify the broadest motivation that you have. It's going to clarify your greatest good. It's going to answer your deepest fear. fear and it's going to purify 
your broadest motivation. So let's listen again to Revelation chapter 21. Our central text for today is found in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Cheery end note, right? Don't worry. We'll attack that. We'll, we'll understand what that means. Friends, um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is like nothing else you find in the entire New Testament. The closest thing that you might compare it to is the book of Daniel, which we read or we considered back in the fall of last year. But both Revelation and Daniel, they really are partners in the same project. They are what's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse is not fire and, you know, um, uh, zombies. Apocalypse means literally a revealing, um, the uncovering of everything that has been hidden, the unfolding of promises that have been made but which can only be seen by faith. That's what apocalypse is, and Revelation is about to reveal that. Ha, that's why they call it Revelation. Now, you might be surprised to know, and I speak with tongue-in-cheek, that a lot of what happens on the front end of the book of Revelation has a great deal of debate surrounding it, whether, whether the events that, the, uh, that John is describing uh, happen closer to his time or whether they happen much later. But there is a lot less debate on the text that we're listening to this morning in Revelation 21, because most people would agree that what it envisions is the culmination of God's intentions for all of humanity, for all of this world. It speaks of an end, both a conclusion and a point. And therefore, even in these eight verses, you hear allusions to Eden and Genesis and to a tabernacle like you hear in Exodus and to the prophetic words of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then, of course, the resurrection of the dead of what we know in Jesus. This is the final act, the final act that has been spoken in and through sinners who are called upon to be saints, who are both sinners and saints. And the first thing that we learn from this passage is a deeply clarifying thought a deeply clarifying thought about something that all of us are already thinking about and all of us are already living out in some way. And what I mean is this, 
every single one of you who is listening to this today, and whether you're not you're listening to this today, you are all looking, searching for the good, for what's good. Everybody, whether they've ever thought about it or not, whether they've ever they journaled about it or not, whether they've ever even talked to a therapist about it or not, they all have a theory of what is good and also how they might seek it. And in this text, here in this first passage, it's out to give us, first of all, some clarity on what is our greatest good. Because if you don't know what your greatest good is, if you don't know what story you're in, you don't know how to live. What is that greatest good? What the vision envisions is a qualitatively different reality that Jesus is making all things new. It's a new heavens. It is a new earth. It speaks of a, of a new Jerusalem descending, which is a, a vivid, evocative way of talking about a new people that inhabit a new world. Not a disembodied spirit, but those whose bodies are made incorruptible and the whole thing, the whole shoot match is different. And in that moment, we learn what comes with that new heavens and new earth. And you heard it in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Uh, the emphasis on the preposition there is intentional. With. Every single instance here of the, of the use of the word dwelling is literally what you find in the Old and New Testament as referring to the tabernacle. The, the place in which God's presence was discerned and sought, the tabernacle eventually becomes a more fixed edifice known as the temple, and then Jesus comes along and sends everybody's head spinning by saying that he himself, he, his body, is the temple in the sense that the perfect embodiment and presence of the Lord is found in him. And therefore, it is Jesus with his people in that moment, and that is to help us anticipate what is our greatest good. Our greatest good is communion with God. The goal of all that he does, of his intentions from time immemorial to time eternal, is that we would be with him, that we would know him, that he would, we would, he would recover for us everything that sin and death and the devil have been out to undermine from the beginning. He is out to recover for us communion. Okay, what do we mean by communion? Not the, the bread and the wine. That's, uh, that's a, an expression of it. But what does he mean by communion? It's, he's talking about a knowledge of God. A knowledge that is, is far greater than just knowledge about God or knowledge about what God has said. It is what the Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom. That's knowledge. It's, a, it's internalized. It's an awareness that is deeply impressed. If you just study another prophetic book, the book of Ezekiel, no fewer than 72 times you hear the Lord saying and doing things. Why? So that they will know that I am the Lord. That they will embrace me as their greatest good. And it is what Jesus prays for. What he prays for in John 17, of all the things that Jesus might pray for, he says in John 17, I pray that they might be one and that they would know me as I know you. That's a knowledge that's deep. And it's, it's more than just a knowledge like the knowledge of physics or the knowledge of literature or the knowledge of coding as, as valuable and amazing as those things are. This is a kind of knowledge 
that is not simply out to regurgitate facts and to, you know, to break them down into the constituent parts and resynthesize them into a whole new configuration. This knowledge is a knowledge that you rest in. This is a knowledge that you feast on. Communion is a knowledge in which what you speak of, what you know, is that you know that you're known. And what you know most is that you're beloved. That's a different kind of knowledge. Uh, you might adore all sorts of intricacies in math and physics, and, and in its much itself, there's a delight in that and a thrill in that, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's something quite beautiful about that. This knowledge, this communion is different. This knowledge is an inner ballast. This knowledge is a deep foundation. This is communion. Okay, kids listening, um, if I were to ask you, raise your hand, tell me what, um, what's good. Like, what's your greatest good? And, and some of you might say um, a good report card. Some of you say, might say, uh, I don't know, first being first in the cross-country track meet. Um, all of those things would be good. You, you might say, uh, I don't know, um, getting a job that you've wanted. Maybe if you want to go to college, getting the acceptance letter. Maybe dinner with Harry Styles. Who knows? That might be your good, and you might love that, but I'm, I'm here to say that's not the greatest good you can have. It isn't. What? What? Okay, let's shift to parents. Parents, what, what is your greatest good? Some of your, your greatest good might be any number of those things that your kids see as their greatest good, except maybe the dinner with Harry Styles. Who, who is Harry Styles? They'll tell you. You may have all sorts of ideas about what your greatest good is. It might be that you might want to live to a ripe old age, as they say, or to live out any number of great dreams that you have. And all of those things are good. All of those things that your kids want is good. Those are good. They're just not your greatest good. And if you let any of those other things become your greatest good, something changes and you set yourself up for something. Because anytime you make any of those your greatest good, look, uh, gosh, how many times have I said this over the last 12 months? Have we not met with a cold, hard reality that what you thought was good that you could count on is no longer that sturdy, solid thing you thought it was. And that's why I want to I reprise a clip that I showed you a few years ago from that play by Cormac McCarthy entitled The Sunset Limited. Uh, the storyline, if you don't remember, it's about a professor who has lost the will to live and he wants to take his own life, but in his attempt to do so, he, he screws that up and he ends up falling into the arms of a blue-collar worker and that blue-collar worker has compassion on this professor and takes him back to his apartment, and there ensues an hour-long conversation that is the debate of the souls, the debate of the worldviews. And here in this moment, the professor is recounting all the things that he thought was good that he could trust. Well, what is it you believe in? A lot of things. All right. All right, what? All right, what things? I believe in things. Give me a um, cultural things, for instance, books, music, art, things like that. All right. Those are the things that have value to me. They're the foundations of civilization. Well, they used to have value to me. I don't have so much value anymore, I guess. What happened to them? People stopped valuing them. I stopped valuing them to a certain extent. I'm not sure I can tell you why. And that world is largely gone now it's soon it will be wholly gone 
I'm not sure I'm following you, Professor. There's nothing to follow. It's all right. The things I loved were very frail, very fragile. I didn't know that. I thought they were indestructible. Frail. Fragile. Everything is that. Not just the things he lists, but anything that you put in the position of making it your greatest good. Those things will always be found to be frail and fragile. They are losable. They can slip through your fingers in a heartbeat. Look, the, the dudes that do the actuarial tables and, and the sociologists, they, they, they talk about life expectancy. And, and, and life expectancy is a real thing. And, and, and maybe life expectancy is somewhere in the mid-70s or, or late 70s. And it's a reasonable desire. Uh, you can easily make your greatest good to live to your life expectancy and to fulfill any number of dreams that you might have by the time that you get there. Any of those things are good. And, and they're all beloved and they're all blessed. And yet, at some point, you realize that there are too many stories that you know and that I know where it doesn't get there. It, it can't get there. And if you've made those things your greatest good, you have set yourself up for the greatest disappointment because they're frail and they're fragile. And that's why even if you, you know people that are out to seek their greatest good and they're out to, as they say, suck the marrow out of life, most of us, maybe, if we look upon our lives, we go, I'm not sure if I knew even know how to do that. Most men, as the famous quote goes, live lives of quiet desperation. Beloved, what we want, what we're seeking for, what most you can have, there is one thing that you can have that you can never lose, whether your life lasts long or short, and that is communion with him. That is knowing that you're known through and through and loved anyway. Loved anyway. And that's why that really sobering part of the text there in verse 8, the, the warning passage, the, the one that makes your hair stand on end, all of those things have to do with one thing. All of those sins that are related in, in short order, they all have to do with one thing. They, they're all about separation from God. Separation now, separation. And that is only out to heighten our sense of what is our greatest good, and that is our communion with the Lord. That's why Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 13, which we're going to speak about more in, in during the Lent, about, behold, there comes a day when I shall know him even as I am fully known. It's our greatest good. And when you believe that, when your life is fading, when it is draining from you, if you will start with that ending and know what that greatest good, then you will not be sucked into thinking that politics is your greatest good, or that other investments or relationships or justice is your greatest good. When you start with that ending, it changes how the way you live in the middle of it until that day. But that's, that's not the only thing that we grasp for. It's not the only thing that we learn. Not only does this vision speak to us about clarifying for us the greatest good, it's also out to answer for us our deepest fear. And we've all got one. Look, um, you emerge from the womb, I emerge from the womb, and not only are we cold and not only uncomfortable, we're terrified. We're terrified. What, what does this cold and brightness now uh, signify, we wonder in the moment. We're terrified. And 
life, therefore, becomes one long journey of discovery of all sorts of things that maybe on the front end terrify us. And in that moment, we, are, we either learn how to run away and cower or to face it in some way. Any one of those things, whether it's, uh, you know, riding on your bicycle with no hands or, I don't know, eating raw fish or speaking in public. Any number of things that you might be terrified by, you either run from it or you face it. But none of those holds a candle to the one thing that we're all most afraid of, and that is suffering and death. Now, if I were to ask you to define for me what is suffering, you may not be able to provide a formal definition, but you know what it is. You know that you want to avoid it. And if you ask philosophers what suffering is, it is, it is really about the denial of the desires of the heart of things that you long for and even properly long for, but which are now out of reach. And it feels like that with suffering, the chasm from you to your greatest desires get farther and farther apart. That's suffering. And all of that suffering is just a prelude to the ultimate kind of suffering, the ultimate kind of ending, and that's death. And when we, when we think about death, when we think about the pain of it, we realize that, that the real challenge in thinking about our death, our immortality, is is not even mostly the pain of dying or the experience of dying. It is what dying ends. Dying ends everything and access to what we love. That's why, as others have put it, um, what we all long for is a love without parting. And death takes that. Death takes that which we love and it's without parting. And therefore, this vision is out to answer that deepest fear. And it does so in verse 4, the text that you probably have memorized and heard it a hundred times. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This ending that John is outlining in whatever means he ever received it. It is not about being completed by another. As beautiful and as, and as profound as that sounds, this ending is an end to the denial of the desires of our heart. This end speaks of the promise of love without parting. Now, you may hear that and, and think, God, um, he's really kind of kicking to the curb the whole idea of, of a love that we might have for another person. And far be it from me. I mean, it may be that you're saying, look, um, what's wrong with valuing another person that you love and finding great joy in that? Nothing! I'm a better man because of the love of my life whose birthday is today. Happy birthday, darling. I am better because of her place in my life. It's a good thing. And yet, look, if you, if you make that your everything, if you believe that they will complete you, if you believe that anything will complete you, you have set yourself up for something. And, and here's where i got to go back to something else that Ernest Becker says in that book. He says, No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we idolize the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. And as he is our ideal measure of value, this imperfection falls back upon us. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major 
threat to you. You complete me? Do you really want to put that on them? Do you really want to put that on you? No, there's nothing wrong with taking great joy and delight and pleasure in the love of another. But it is not the answer to your deepest fear. In some ways, it might heighten it if you make them that. Because there will be a love with parting. Okay. So there's that objection that you might have. But the other objection is this. Why should I believe verse 4 at all? We are, if not surrounded by it, just more awakened to the presence of death. Perhaps like we haven't been in recorded memory in the last 12 months. We, we hear about it all the time. And there are any number of faith traditions or conventional forms of wisdom that envision um, you know, a, a life beyond our earthly existence that speak of a love without parting. Um, even people whose, whose faith, you might say, is, is so opaque that you couldn't even ask them to explain what, 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 uh, what grounds it. They'll, they'll still say, when somebody dies, they're in a better place. I'll see them again. And you don't chagrin them in the least for that. That's a natural human impulse to long for a love without parting. But what does Christianity bring into the mix in order to answer that deepest fear with something profound? Because it happened. Jesus was raised, and that resurrection was more than a metaphor. It was more than just a wish fulfillment projected upon him. These folks who said, there will come a day in which your tears will be dried. The reason he could say that is because his tears had been dried. They can say there will be a day when there will be no more mourning because their mourning was replaced by joy. There will come a day, they can say, when death shall be no more because they saw death ended in the person of Jesus. None of that is a proof. None of that gives you certainty. But his resurrection is this. It, 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 it explains the most plausible reason why anybody would speak of it and then give their lives for it. The best reason to believe that the resurrection happened is the expression and example and witness of those who went to all measure to make that known at great cost to themselves. The reason that this faith answers that deepest fear is because the vision is a profound answer because it rests upon testimony that validates its claim. That is the answer to its deepest fear. Death, no more. What we all want is a love with our parting. And in Christ, what we have is evidence of more than, just, more than just that desire, more than just the fulfillment of that desire. We have that in Him. We have evidence of it. And when you start with that ending, it, it doesn't end all the experience of fear that you might have about death. It doesn't. We will fear it at moments. On our own final beds, we may fear it in the moment, but, but sometimes you just need one voice in the room to remind you that there is a reason to believe it. I, I don't have time to show you the clip from The Natural, but you know that film about the man that comes back from being retired from baseball, and Robert Redford plays the, the, the washed-up baseball player that comes back and, and takes the world by storm, and yet he comes up to the plate one day, and, and the whole stadium doesn't believe he can do it, but there's one person that stands to her feet, Glenn Close, his friend, 
from the past who stands to her feet to say one thing, I believe you can do this. In the crowd of your mind that may say to you that you have no reason to believe that there is a breath on the other side of your last breath, all you need is one voice to stand there and say, I believe it. And Christ, by his spirit, is the one who stands there to say, you should believe it because it happened to me. That's a profound answer to our deepest fear. And when you start with that ending, with the help of his spirit, it might actually help you to live in the middle in a different way. Which then helps us get us to the last thing that I think this text is out to tell us. It is out to clarify for us our greatest good. It is out to answer for us our deepest fear. But mostly, or just say equally, it's out to purify our broadest motivations. The, the motivation that, that we find at work in us most of the time. We all have a motivation. Look, when, when actors... Uh, are acting, they're always asking themselves or the director, what's my motivation? In this scene, what is true of me and of the moment that is animating me to say or act in the way that I do? That's our motivation. Every actor in the moment has a motivation. Well, as it is true with the stage, so it is true with life. Because remember, Shakespeare, all the world's a stage, right? We all have a part to play. And in that part, we're all animated by something. And in this passage, we find for us what is our broadest motivation. Because there's any number of things that can motivate what you and I do. The question is what should motivate us. And you hear that in verses 6 and 7. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my people. When John is writing, the church is not very large, but it is large enough to have attracted enough negative attention that it finds itself in the threat of persecution. So it knows what he speaks of. He knows what's coming. He knows what they're up to. And so when he speaks there of conquering, to those who conquer, it's not conquering like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. The word there for conquering is about persevering. It is about withstanding the struggle against temptation. It is about withstanding the struggle to, to be afraid and to give up. And in that moment, he's saying to those who persevere in this, there is blessing to, to speak for him, to walk as he does, to, to welcome those who are different from us, to to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And whether it's that day or any day, there's always a struggle to believe. Anybody who tells you that there is not a struggle to believe is out to sell you something. But to those who conquer, to those who persevere, there is something good. And that is our motivation, what we're motivated to. To continue with Him, to persevere in Him. But what are we motivated by? What we're motivated by is actually bookended there in what we're motivated to. We're motivated by what he says there in verse 7, or rather in verse, the end of verse 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That, that might sound familiar. That sounds like what Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, or later in John chapter 6, that I am the water of life. 
that there is a kind of deep inner sustenance and satisfaction that comes with knowing him, with communion with him, that keeps us then from frantically finding our inner sustenance in everything else that is frail or fragile, in every relationship, in every friendship. We are frantic to find something that will hold us together. And Jesus is saying, I I have what you're looking for as good as those other things might be. I will give it to you, and I will give it to you freely because you can't pay for it. Because you've got nothing that you bring that might, me say, might make me believe that I should give it to you. I give it to you freely, but I give it to you at my cost. And therefore, we're motivated by a grace that is at the foundation of everything that God is doing in making all things new. And he gives that water to us freely for a purpose Namely, like it says there at the end of verse 7, and I will be his God and he will be my son. That the faithfulness to which we are encouraged, that is motivated by the belief that we are given something for us at cost to him, is so that we would believe that we belong to him forever. That we are not merely servants on his field but children in his house and at his table. This is what we believe the gospel to be. That at cost to himself, he gives us a gift that is entirely free to us, that we might belong to him forever, so that we might persevere and conquer, facing temptation, facing the struggles not to believe, that we might live as we do. And that, friends, is our broadest motivation, because you can live your whole life out to protect your reputation, or you can live your whole life out of fear of what will happen if you don't live in a certain way, this motivation is different. Oh, this motivation is certainly to activity, but not so that you can be his beloved, but because you already are. That's our broadest motivation, and it will change everything else you seek in this world. It will change everything that you put your heart, mind, and soul and hands to when you start with this ending. So what do I do with all this? I want to end by showing you a very different clip about love from a very, very different kind of film. And it's the film The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And if you don't know that story, it's about two people who had a relationship and then the relationship went south. They broke up. And then there's this technology that's now available where you can have your memories, particular memories, erased. And so both of them have their memories erased of each other and so they, they then begin to walk about again and, and look in, in, in its own Shakespearean way. They meet each other again and they don't realize that they've known each other before and they don't realize that they've had their memories erased of one another already and yet they still come together and they still begin to cultivate the possibility that they might love one another. And here in this moment, they come to a place of reckoning where they realize of what is between them but also their own limitations. And the question is, so what are we going to do about it? Wait. What? I don't know. What do you want, Joel? Just wait. I don't know. I want you to wait for just a while. (sighs) 
I'm not a concept, Joel. I'm not perfect. I can't see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will. Now I can't. But you will. You know, you will think of things. And I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's its own revelation, right? When, when two people realize <laughs> that they will not complete each other, then at last they can love one another in their own set of limitations and have their expectations set appropriately. The, the, the subtext of this sermon is that you may live in a Jerry Maguire world, but you need to get to an eternal sunshine world as fast as possible. And the way you can is by living according to the ending of this story that we find in Revelation 21. Because in whatever else that you might seek as your good, in whoever else that you might end up loving, in whatever else that you might be pursuing, when you make your greatest good your communion with the Lord, when you let His resurrection be the answer to your deepest fear, and when you let the grace that propels you to faithfulness be the broadest motivation that purifies everything else you do, then you can finally love and serve everything only for what they are and not for the gods that you're turning them into. And then you find yourself in a very different story. And then you kind of know what it is to live. And friends, we all need it. Boy, do we need it. Boy, do I need it. And that's why I'm going to end with this quote from, of all places, the Screwtape Letters which is C.S. Lewis's attempt to imagine what would, a, what would a, a demon bishop say to a demon underling. And he explains what God does about how we think about time and eternity. And so Wormwood tells his underling, he says, the humans live in time, but our enemy, that is God, destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with Him, or with the present, capital P, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from Himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, and giving thanks for the present pleasure. Friends, it's the Sabbath. You don't get another day like this for the next six. And I ask you, what will you meditate on for any part of the rest of the day? Will you take a moment to consider your eternal union with Him? Will you now, in light of that, take thought of your present and give wonder to what it means to obey the present voice of conscience, bear the present cross, receive the present grace, and give thanks for the present pleasure. Oh, please, don't hurry into your next thing. You'll be too famished by Tuesday. Beloved, weather keeps us from having an outdoor service this morning. We'll try again next week. 
And as you saw in your email, soon there'll be a time where we'll be able to gather in a smaller setting within this room. So more details on that to come, but just know that day is coming, Lord willing. And now, beloved, go with this word of benediction from 1 John, or from Revelation 21. Right. And then I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And all he, so he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The peace of the Lord be with you, beloved.